Hello and welcome to the last Annals of Internal Medicine podcast for 2022. I'm Dr. Christine Lane, Annals Editor-in-Chief, and I'm here to let you know about what's new in Annals since our last podcast. The end of the year is a busy time for everyone, so let's get right to the articles. The first article reports a randomized control trial in persons with type 2 diabetes that found that a low-carbohydrate, high-fat, calorie-unrestricted diet helped patients achieve better weight loss and glucose control over a six-month intervention compared to a high-carb, low-fat diet. The changes were not sustained three months after the intervention ended, however, suggesting a need for long-term dietary changes to maintain meaningful health benefits. More than 480 million people worldwide are affected by type 2 diabetes. More than half of persons with diabetes also have non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, which can progress to cirrhosis and impaired liver function. Prior studies suggest that weight loss improves both diabetes control and non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, and restriction of carbohydrate intake improves the control of blood sugar levels. Researchers from the University of Southern Denmark randomly assigned 165 persons with type 2 diabetes to either a low-carb, high-fat diet or a high-carb, low-fat diet for six months. Participants in both groups were asked to eat the same number of calories that they usually did. Participants on the low-carb diet were asked to eat no more than 20% of their calories from carbohydrates, but could have 50 to 60% of their calories from fat and 20 to 30% from protein. Patients on the low-fat diet were asked to eat about half of their calories in carbohydrates, and the rest evenly split between fats and proteins. The authors found that persons on the low-carb diet reduced hemoglobin A1c by 0.59% more than persons on the low-fat diet, and also lost 3.8 kilograms more weight compared to those in the low-fat group. The low-carb dieters also lost more body fat and reduced their waist circumference. Both groups had higher density lipoprotein, cholesterol, and lower triglycerides at six months. However, changes were not sustained three months after the intervention ended, suggesting that dietary changes need to be sustained over the long term to maintain the positive effects. The liver was not affected by the high fat intake in the low-carb group. The researchers found no difference on the amount of liver fat or inflammation between the two groups. In the evaluation of protease inhibition for COVID-19 in high-risk patients trial, nirvitrelivir plus ritinivir, commonly known by the trade name Paxlovid, led to an 89% reduction in hospitalization or death among unvaccinated outpatients with early COVID-19. The World Health Organization recommended Paxlovid in April 2022, but only for the highest-risk persons and advised against use in most vaccinated and other lower-risk persons. Yet the use of the treatment in vaccinated lower-risk persons has expanded in many locations despite the uncertain clinical impact in this population. The next article reports a study of 44,551 non-hospitalized persons with COVID-19 aged 50 years or older in the Massachusetts General Brigham and Women's Healthcare System to assess whether Paxlovid was associated with a reduced risk for hospitalization or death in the setting of prevalent SARS-CoV-2 immunity and immune-evasive SARS-CoV-2 lineages. More than 90% of participants had at least three vaccine doses at the time of the study. During the study period, 28.1% of participants received Paxlovid and 71.9% did not. The authors found that recipients of the drug had a 40% lower risk for hospitalization and a 71% lower risk of death 
but it's important to emphasize that the risk for hospitalization or death, even in untreated persons, was already very low, less than 1%. Overall, the mortality rate among persons prescribed Paxlovid was 0.55%, and it was 0.97% among persons who were not prescribed the drug. The authors note that among those who were diagnosed as outpatients, Black, Hispanic, and Latinx patients had much lower rates of prescription of Paxlovid. To realize the public health potential of outpatient COVID-19 therapy, clinicians must address this disparity. MPOX is historically endemic to West and Central Africa, but spread significantly in other countries in 2022, primarily among men who had sex with men. During this time, Montreal and Canada emerged as the site of the first large outbreak in North America. The next article describes the epidemiologic, clinical, and demographic data from 402 persons with probable or confirmed cases of MPOX in Montreal and the public health response by Montreal Public Health. The authors report that Montreal experienced its initial MPOX outbreak in May 2022, followed by two peaks in early June and early July. This was followed by a decline in cases. Nearly all reported cases were among men who have sex with men who likely acquired the infection through sexual contact. Montreal Public Health Authorities acted quickly to lead interventions to control the transmission. These interventions included early and sustained engagement with the affected communities, alerting clinicians to promote rapid case detection and reporting, performing case investigation and contact tracing, and contributing to the development of interim guidance on diagnostic testing, case and contact management, and recommended infection and prevention measures. According to the authors, the prompt recognition of the importance of pre-exposure vaccination in at-risk populations and the extended offer of vaccination to tourists coming to Montreal led to many being vaccinated. They add that increasing and supporting equitable access to vaccines for at-risk populations worldwide should be a global priority for the prevention and control of MPOX. Next is the new Annals Beyond the Guidelines Grand Rounds that features a clinical psychologist and sleep physician debating the management of a patient with chronic insomnia. Insomnia, which is characterized by persistent sleep difficulties in association with daytime dysfunction, is a common concern in clinical practice. Chronic insomnia disorder is defined as symptoms that occur at least three times per week and persist for at least three months. Recent guidelines recommend multi-component cognitive behavioral therapy and a limited number of medications that might be useful to treat insomnia. The Grand Rounds discussant, Eric Zhu, an assistant professor at Harvard Medical School and a clinical psychologist at Dana-Farber Cancer Institute, and Eric Heckman, an instructor at Harvard Medical School and sleep specialist and pulmonologist at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center, discussed the case of a 64-year-old man who had experienced difficulty getting to sleep and early morning awakening for decades. The patient was prescribed Zolpidem many years ago, which was initially taken as needed, but now is a daily necessity to get to sleep. More recently, trazodone was added to this regimen. The patient has also been diagnosed with obstructive sleep apnea. In their assessment, both Dr. Zhu and Heckman agree that cognitive behavioral therapy is the preferred intervention in the patient's situation. Dr. Heckman would first evaluate and treat the patient for obstructive sleep apnea and other comorbid conditions such as restless leg syndrome that might affect his sleep, while Dr. Zhu would dispel the commonly held belief that patients all require eight hours of sleep per night. 
Dr. Zhu and Mr. F would also collaborate on identifying his individual sleep need through a structured process involving sleep restriction and subsequently expansion. Dr. Heckman would consider a streamlined clinic-based behavioral intervention focusing on sleep restriction and stimulus control if cognitive behavioral therapy was not accessible or acceptable to the patient. He would not insist on discontinuation of medications immediately, but would attempt to stop trazodone followed by a reduction in the dose of zolpidem over time as tolerated. Go to annals.org to watch a video of the Grand Rounds, read the accompanying article, and earn CME and MOC credit. Monoclonal gammopathy of undetermined significance is of considerable clinical importance to all primary care physicians given its high prevalence in the general population. It is also the topic of this month's In the Clinic Review. Monoclonal gammopathy of undetermined significance has a variable but lifelong risk of progression to hematologic malignancies such as multiple myeloma, Waldenstrom macroglobinemia, or light-chain amyloidosis. In addition, it has been associated with several non-malignant yet symptomatic disorders that require therapy directed towards eliminating the monoclonal gammopathy. Thus, it is not only important to understand the essentials of diagnosing and monitoring patients with this condition, but also to recognize when to refer patients to a specialist. Next is a cohort study of more than 4,500 persons without a history of atrial fibrillation or stroke that found that measuring left atrial mechanical function can improve stroke prediction. Atrial fibrillation is a serious health problem because of its increasing prevalence in the aging population and its association with risks of cardiac thromboembolism and stroke. An intrinsically prothrombic atrial myopathy characterized by changes in left atrial mechanical function and size may proceed and promote development of atrial fibrillation. Evaluating left atrial mechanics and size may have some utility in enhancing prediction of cardiac embolism and stroke earlier in a patient's disease course before they develop atrial fibrillation. Researchers evaluated data from 4,917 persons participating in the atherosclerosis risk and community studies and found that left atrial mechanical dysfunction detected by analysis of left atrial strain was associated with ischemic stroke, independently of left atrial size and risk factors from the CHADS2 DS2 VAS score. They also found that the addition of left atrial reservoir strain to the score improves stroke prediction. According to the authors, these results support the hypothesis that atrial myopathy, characterized by left atrial mechanical dysfunction, is intrinsically prothrombotic, resulting in high risk for cardiac embolism and ischemic stroke. An accompanying editorial applauds the study authors for bringing attention to the possible role of atrial cardiopathy in mediating cardioembolic stroke in the absence of atrial fibrillation. Approximately 38% of adults aged 65 years or older have chronic kidney disease. Older adults with advanced chronic kidney disease face important preference-sensitive decisions about kidney replacement therapy that are complicated by the uncertain timing of physical and kidney function decline. High-quality decision-making is particularly important for older patients facing intensive therapies such as dialysis and requires that patients are knowledgeable about their prognosis and treatment options. However, patients are often underinformed about options for management of their condition, with fewer than 10% of dialysis patients discussing their prognosis with nephrologists, despite 90% wishing to do so. 
To study a potential strategy for improving patient decision-making, researchers from Tufts University randomly assigned 400 persons aged 70 years and older who had chronic kidney disease stages 4 through 5 but did not yet require dialysis to an interactive decision-making aid called DART, or the Decision Aid for Renal Therapy, or Usual Care, which was written education about treatment alone, to assess whether the decision aid improved decisional quality compared with usual care. Participants were recruited from eight nephrology clinics associated with four U.S. centers. The authors found that the use of the decision aid improved decisional quality for six months with modest attenuation in 18 months. According to the authors, these findings underscore the promise of a replicable, scalable decision aid for preserving patient autonomy for critical decisions that determine how people live out their last stages of life. An accompanying editorial calls on clinicians to build an infrastructure and culture that supports shared decision-making, a process that incorporates clinician and patient input and deliberation. Also new on Annals.org are the latest episodes of Annals Consult Guys and the Annals on Call podcast. The Consult Guys discuss post-operative atrial fibrillation, and Annals on Call discusses the role of sigmoidoscopy in colorectal cancer screening. That brings us to the end of this podcast. A reminder to those of you who need to catch up on those year-end CME credits, there are lots of opportunities to earn CME and MOC credit on Annals.org. Wishing everyone a happy, healthy holiday season and hope you return on January 3rd for the first Annals podcast of 2023.